This is WFG Insights, your download on the real estate market, featuring industry experts, thought leadership, and what's trending, keeping you informed and ahead of the market. In this episode, WFG founder and executive chairman Patrick Stone comments on the conflict in Ukraine, inflation, rate hikes, and the potential impact on the real estate market. And with major tech companies heading back to the office, an update on commercial real estate sectors. And Pat, no shortage of things to uh, unpack in this episode. I want to start with the impact of Russia's invasion on Ukraine on mortgage rates. Now, we're talking long term here. Uh, The Federal Reserve is set to raise rates in the days ahead. Does a flight to safety out of the stock market and into the bond market, does that impact or maybe offset uh, what the Fed's about to do when it comes to mortgage rates? Well, the flight to safety has already occurred and was fairly short-lived, to be honest with you. The 10-year popped back up today. It had gone down from uh, round two back down to 1.7 with the flight to safety because of the Ukraine invasion by Russia. But it's popped back up. So I don't know if we're going to get a real meaningful, lasting impact on a flight to safety basis. The one thing about the Ukraine invasion that will impact the Fed's behavior is I doubt seriously that they're going to go into a a reduction of the balance sheet. There was a lot of speculation that they would raise rates in the second half of this year. Maybe they would start reducing their balance sheet. My instinct right now is they'll raise rates a quarter point this month. They'll probably raise it five to seven times a quarter point. But I doubt seriously that they'll do anything on their balance sheet later this year. I think they'll let that unwind naturally as as bonds mature. Okay. So looks like we'll hold fairly steady then on long-term mortgage rates. I want to ask you about oil prices. Well, I'm I'm sorry. Yeah, we'll hold steady, but they're going to trend up because the Ukraine invasion by Russia will impact inflation. Um, You know, Russia provided about 40% of the oil and gas to Europe. That's been cut off. So that's going to impact Europe and tangentially it'll impact us. It'll actually create some uh, benefit short-term for places like uh, like Houston, Texas, that depends on petrochemicals. And you've seen oil prices go up. Uh, But there's also going to be some impact in the grain market because Ukraine exported a lot of wheat and corn. So um, I think it's going to prolong the inflation. I think inflation will continue to trend down. We're seeing a loosening of the supply chain. So inflation will trend downwards, but not as fast as we'd hope because this will prolong the inflation a little bit. So specifically then with mortgage interest rates, you see them trending up maybe higher than they would have uh, prior to this invasion? Uh, perhaps a little bit and maybe uh, maybe a little bit faster. I don't think it'll impact mortgage interest rates horribly. I, don't, uh, I still think mortgage rates will trend up. They'll probably be solid around four by the end of the year and four and a half late next year. Uh, it may exceed that. Uh, right now, I don't think so. But it, you'll see a trending upward uh, upward trend uh, and maybe just a hair faster than we would have seen otherwise. Okay. Glad we cleared that up. Now, oil prices obviously at highs not seen in well over a decade now. Inflation is soaring. We'll talk specifically about those numbers in a minute. But before we do, I want to just talk consumer sentiment. And that can fluctuate widely based on What's seen at the gas pump or at the grocery store? Um, what's the impact of that on home buying? You know, it's an interesting 
time where, you know, the job market's wide open. There's plenty of jobs out there. There's plenty of good paying jobs out there. We see income levels rising. We see people with a lot of money, according to the reports, yet we have a lot of turmoil going on. What do you think the impact of all this is on consumer sentiment, specifically on buying a home? Well, um, I think there's a little bit of a, uh, a divorce between consumer sentiment and buying a home. We used to uh, think that they were tied to each other. The pandemic created a very interesting situation. And you, if you peeled the onion to see how real the change was, it was substantial and it was real. We saw a meaningful increase in retirement. We saw a meaningful increase in job uh, people leaving jobs and seeking other types of employment. We've seen a tremendous surge in home buying because people are more conscious of quality of life issues. Now, that's occurred despite consumer sentiment trending downwards. So um, I think there's been uh, consumer sentiment is more about the uncertainty that has been prolonged by the pandemic and the reoccurring uh, waves of infections. You know, I think that there's been a divorce there between a direct tie in home ownership and consumer sentiment. Uh, We're seeing a situation now where people want to own a home because they want to have some control over the quality of their life. And owning a home is key to that. And owning a home has become of paramount importance now, kind of like it was 40 years ago. And, uh, you know, I I don't think it's directly tied to consumer sentiment anymore. Okay, good to hear. Uh, Thursday, March 10th, we got the latest inflation numbers, that headline number at 7.9%, right in line with forecast. Uh, That's the worst or the highest it's been since 1982, so 40 years there. Core CPI, I always kind of get a laugh out of this when they say it excludes food and energy, which literally everybody is impacted by. Uh, That's running at 6.4%. That's the worst in 40 years. And Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen uh, today basically threw up her hands and admitted what you have been telling us for a few months now, that this nasty inflation bug will be with us for at least a year, uh, and it could get a little worse before it gets better. It really is an interesting time, isn't it? It is, you know, and I think it's important to remember that this is different than the inflation we saw in the early 80s. Um, That was what was known as stagflation, and and really stagflation, that name was derived from the fact that you had inflation and basically no economic growth or minimal economic growth during the 70s and early 80s. And it became a uh, inflation was and raising your prices was the only way you could obtain the necessary money to give raises and and grow. So stagflation, no growth and inflation. We have the same amount of basically the same amount of money circulating right now, but we have economic growth and that's different. So stagflation doesn't apply here. This inflation was caused principally because a tremendous amount of purchasing power went from services into goods. And goods, uh, purchasing of durable goods skyrocketed during the pandemic. And that caused uh, that and the impact on labor from the infections uh, caused a jamming of the supply chain. And that accelerated prices. And as this went on, as we had reoccurring infections and waves of infection, you kind of got inflation embedded in the system now. And we're seeing price increases where they're not really necessary other than people can get away with it. So we have an inflationary pressure right now. We have a lot of money out there chasing things, but we still have growth. So I'm not pessimistic and I'm not concerned right now about stagflation. I do believe the Fed can uh, put a throttle on it 
and uh, ease back the inflationary pressure by raising rates. And I also think as more money moves to services out of purchasing goods, that will cause inflation to abate somewhat too. So I'm not concerned yet that we are stuck in the quote stagflationary environment, even though inflation is very high. You know, it's certainly not stagnant and I don't want to get too technical, but you know, you talk about the move over to, you know, the service economy, literally everybody coming back online. Now you're out traveling. I will be as well. And all of a sudden now gas is five bucks a gallon. The airlines Alaska Airlines already considering some route cuts due to higher fuel costs. Now, they say they can manage it for a while. Uh, Their expectation is off by about 6% of what they forecast. But you start to see those things popping up just when the world's coming back online. And how big of an impact does that have on that shift of money back to travel, service, etc., away from goods? Well, that'll impact it somewhat. And it's being driven again by uh, OPEC and Russia. Russia, because they've, uh, you know, basically they've been cut off and, and, uh, you know, Saudi Arabia and these other countries are not willing to increase production. So we have limited production. You will see some increase in production at other places, including the U.S., but you will have a problem with the energy prices, at least until we get the uh, Ukraine situation behind us. So that will impact it a little bit, but I don't think it'll be traumatic. I could be wrong, but I don't think it'll be traumatic. Okay. Watch a lot of content and uh, can't recall the name of the economist, but he basically said, you know, supply chains improving. It's not all the way back yet, but this situation with inflation in his mind was not a case of supply chain anymore, just simply a case of too much money out there. The basics of too much money chasing too few goods. And at this point, that's what's driving this inflation. You mentioned it. It's certainly not stagnant out there. There's a lot happening, right? People are spending money. Um, So far, this hasn't taken a huge edge off the economy. But do you agree with that? I mean, is is that where we're at in this cycle now, where now it's just too much money out there? Well, I I think it's a little bit more complex than that. I think that contributes to it. Obviously, people are able to purchase things, and that has continued. Uh, Goldman Sachs has a real interesting uh, supply chain meter, if you will. And uh, the top of the meter is 10, and it was stuck at 10 for a long time. It was even at 10 in December. It's down to 7 now. So it has eased up a little bit, but only 30%. So it's not back to normal yet. Um, and consequently, because there is money, people are able to pay higher prices and people have raised prices because uh, they're surrounded by inflationary pressure. So, yeah, there's, there's some of that and it will continue for a while. I do think with the Fed raising rates a little bit, uh, I do think that they can get this under control. We'll see. But I do think it's uh, I think they can get it under control. I don't see this being a problem that's commensurate to what we saw in the 70s and early 80s. If it goes on, we're still having this conversation a year from now, I'm going to be getting quite worried. Okay. Well, we'll keep tabs on it. Obviously, a real estate audience here. We talk a lot about residential. In this episode, we want to shift the focus a little more over toward commercial real estate. And we're seeing the major tech companies head back to the office. Uh, So I guess, you know, so much for the work from home deal or I guess will some of it be hybrid? What's your outlook here with commercial real estate? I mean, it seems like a lot of the large companies, a Jamie Dimon, a JP Morgan Chase, even in the, the financial industry, 
hey, they want to get people back to the office. Well, I think everybody does. And there's a couple of reasons for it. Uh, in our industry, for example, it's very, very hard for people to learn the business without uh, participating in an OJT environment, on-the-job training. You can't go to most of real estate, for example, you, you, it's hard to learn just by, from a book or in a class. Uh, you need experience. You need hands-on experience. You need to relate to other people. If you have questions or problems, you want to be able to ask someone. Um, I think that you will still have work from home, but I think work from home will go down to uh, you know somewhere in the 20s uh, in the next year. Uh, I think it was eight. I think the number I saw that it was eight percent prior to the pandemic. Uh, it'll probably end up in the low 20s. There are some professions, jobs, and and uh, vocations that can be done from home, but a lot of things require the interaction. If you're going to have innovation, if you're going to have problem resolution, if you're going to have uh, increases in efficiency, you need to have and and people want to have. Uh, interaction, personal interaction, both for learning, but also uh, it's stimulating. So um, I do think that work from home will, will go down significantly, but I think it will be higher than it was uh, pre-pandemic in the future. The impact in commercial real estate is interesting. Uh, there's been, you talked a little bit earlier about a lot of money out there. A lot of that money that's out there circulating is being uh, invested in real estate because it is a solid long-term asset. And you're seeing a tremendous amount of money go into things like industrial properties. I have been somewhat surprised at how well office buildings have uh, held up despite the fact that there was such tremendous amount of work from home. And that's because there's money out, as you said, there's a lot of money out there circulating. So commercial real estate has done better, I think, than anybody assumed. And uh, there's still a lot of investing going on in commercial real estate. And talk about that ecosystem that surrounds commercial real estate. I mean, obviously, if you have a, a skyscraper in a downtown urban setting with thousands of people in it, uh, it's the back to office is one thing. It's the dry cleaners. It's the delis, right? It's the parking people. It is literally, I mean, it's an economy within the economy, right? Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. Um, I do think we will return closer to where we were than most people anticipate. I do not think we'll go all the way back to where we were pre-pandemic. I do think there's been some fundamental changes. We had a couple of years there where I think new construction dropped significantly. So I think demand will uh, will make up for that change. And uh, I think the commercial market will be uh, healthier than most people thought. You know, it's interesting uh, and ironic. Amazon closing its brick and mortar. Those Amazon bookstores, ironically, they're closing bookstores, something they did quite a bit over the last 20 years. Um, what's your read in commercial real estate, specifically on the retail sector? You know, we're seeing a lot of businesses, I think, that probably had some sort of support uh, through the pandemic that now we're out of it. They lose that support. Seeing some businesses close. What's your read specifically on retail in commercial real estate? So I subscribe to the theory that e-commerce will constitute 30% of all retail by 2025. So three years from now, we're going to be operating with 30% of all retail online through e-commerce. That will impact a lot of things that, you know, if you're looking around for things that uh, probably have a limited life and their present state, I would suggest shopping centers and environments like that are going to be, they're going to be tested. I think they're going to have to reinvent themselves 
uh, and kind of move away from being just retail centers. They're going to have to be amusement centers. They're going to have to do things differently in order to be viable. So e-commerce will go to 30%. And in um, that was a trend that was happening, but it got accelerated in the pandemic because people purchase so much online. They're used to buying online. They have a great variety of things they can buy online. They can buy online efficiently. And the delivery services now are sophisticated that you get things delivered very, very quickly. So uh, 30% of all retail online, that will change the underlying environment in terms of, of, of retail stores for some industries. Yeah, I think the best measure is always our own household, right? You know, my girls go to the mall looking for very specific things and are very disappointed when they come away without them and then stop at Target on the way home and found everything all in one place. And, you know, it's a good little survey, right? When you hear that kind of feedback from your own family and think, I mean, gosh, you're right on <laughs> online shopping and the delivery and the any ability to return things now, which was a huge hindrance up until probably two or three years ago. It's now pretty easy. So I agree with you. I think a lot of this experience, you know, you need something specific. Uh, you're crazy to go out hunting for it, right? Yeah, well, and, and uh, we both live that at home, don't we? I mean, that's, uh, <laughs> that's it's sort of become the standard. I mean, I think we buy a tremendous amount online and we'll continue to do so. You know, we talk a lot about housing, but we have not talked about multifamily. So keeping this commercial real estate conversation going with multifamily, with the squeeze on residential, I mean, this has got to be pretty obvious that multifamily has got to be pretty hot. What's what's the outlook here over the next two to three years? Are we going to hit that point in multifamily where that gets overbuilt or caught up? Or where are we at in that sector? Well, that, that's a very good question. And I think really what's driving a lot of the demand, well, there's two things happening. One, the demand is being driven by a tremendous population bubble coming into head of household age. Now, head of household means when the when uh, a child becomes old enough to move out, they can either buy a home or go to an apartment, but they become head of household. And the millennials now are a tremendous population bubble, very akin, the biggest population bubble we've seen since the baby boomers. And they are in head of household at age. Uh, and we're actually getting towards the end of the millennials, but there's still a tremendous amount of demand being created by people becoming arriving at head of household age. So there is a tremendous amount of demand for multifamily and will continue to be so and for single family. How long that will last? I think it will level out in the next three to five years a little bit. Uh, I think there is some price appreciation in multifamily that is being driven by inflation and by the ability to raise prices because houses have gone up so much. So it'll be interesting to watch. I think the demand is legitimate, at least for the foreseeable future. You know, I always ask you that question, uh, what are you watching that nobody else is watching? So I guess maybe a, a, a spin on that would be, in light of the past month, what's happened with Russia and Ukraine and, uh, you know, oil prices, are you revising any forecasts? Are you, are you adjusting things and going, okay, you know, wait a minute, this is a concern. What's, what's going on there? Well, I, I um, was very, very optimistic about demand exceeding supply and uh, the real estate market being good for, you know, probably the next five to seven years. Uh, I'm a little bit more concerned now about the potential for a recession in the next couple of years. It doesn't necessarily have to happen, but we have enough variables now. 
And especially if the yield curve becomes inverted, then it will be problematic. But, uh, you know, so I'm a little bit more concerned about a potential recession as a result of all this. Uh, we'll see what happens. Uh, I don't think it's a given. I don't even think it's a real high probability right now, but it's on the radar screen. When you say the yield curve inverting, tell us what that means, because I know a lot of people will hear that and they, they want to know what that means. Short-term rates are higher than long-term rates. Okay. So a 30-year bond or a 30-year mortgage would be a lower rate than a 5 or 10-year. Well, or then a t- the 10-year T-bill gets higher than the longer-term T-bills. Uh, and then, you know, that, that creates some an inverted yield curve almost always results in a recession. Historically, it's always uh, been a, a, a trigger for a recession. So okay. uh, it screws things. I guess that's a, that's a, <laughs> a very impolite but accurate way of putting it. It screws up the, <laughs> it screws up the financial system, the ability to borrow money at a reasonable rate, ability to fund things from a business point of view, not necessarily a long-term point of view. Let's talk about a scenario that I think wouldn't be a bad scenario. Rising rates slowly, gradually, from where we're at now into the, you know, let's say five, six range over the next, you know, say 12 to 18 months even. Wouldn't that help the housing market in terms of gradually getting back to, let's call it normalization, right? Uh, Wouldn't wouldn't that help? No. (laughs) Okay. I don't think that's going to. I think if you're talking about the 30-year fixed-rate mortgage, is that what you're talking about? Yeah, just a slow, you know, let's let's get yeah. back to normal four, kind of a, a deal. Four and half, uh, I'll be surprised if it hits five anytime in the next couple of years. Okay, good to and know. And I don't know that I don't know what you mean by help. What were you specifically referring to in terms of help? Well, overall, in terms of rising rates, more inventory from builders, maybe more resales coming on. And, you know, you talk about this bubble with uh, the millennials and everybody else that would love to buy a home right now. Can we gradually get back to some some semblance of a normalization in the market where you you can do that, not what really is an incredibly tight market. I think raising rates would cause a normalization. What will cause a normalization in the market is for supply to catch up with demand. And it's important to remember that we've underbuilt, we've underbuilt new homes dramatically for like 12 years, actually longer than that, about 14 years. And there's estimates of how, how much that shortage is. Some people say 1.6 million. Some people say, yeah, but that's really short. It's probably We're probably 2 million behind on new home construction. It's going to take three to five years for us to get back to a normalization in terms of supply and demand. We need to build new, more single-family homes. Raising rates won't, won't uh, cause a normalization. That'll probably actually impair it. Uh, we need to see builders get back to building homes. They're ready to do so. If you look at the statistics, permits have gone up, starts have gone up, completions are still flat. That's because materials are hard to get. They're costly because of inflation, hard to get employees, wage inflation impacted. It's taking builders, you know, 50% longer to build something and they have very little control over the the final cost because there's too many variables on the cost of materials and and wage pressure. So uh, we need to get back so that supply uh, equals demand 
if this hadn't happened with Russia, I was saying, Russia and Ukraine, I was saying, okay, three to five years, we'll be back to normality. It may take five to seven years. We'll see what happens here. But uh, that's really just a function of building homes because we've underbuilt for 14 years. Yeah. No, you've made a, a very strong point of that. I always feel a little better after I talk to you, after I've been <laughs> consuming the mainstream financial media for three or four weeks. You know, you kind of get punch drunk and you got to call Uncle Pat and get reset. So that's why we do this every month. <laughs> um, while I have you, uh, you're back on the road. I mean, you are the road warrior. You're traveling through Texas right now. So we appreciate you taking time to join us uh, from Big D. But you got an event coming up. The Spark event in Orlando is back. And uh, by the time a lot of people hear this or see this, it'll be over. But give us a preview. Well, you know, we do the Spark event to try to, um, it benefits us as a company because we get to interact with our agents and potential agents. And we find out what people are worried about, what they're thinking about, how we can be of help to them. We try to make it beneficial to our agents by providing insights in the economy, uh, specifically in technology and sales. And so this is really, I'm really excited about next week's event because it's been two years since we've had an event. Uh, actually, excuse me, it's been three years since we've had an event. And uh, I've missed that interaction. I think we've all missed the, that uh, that dynamic that's created by getting a lot of people that have a common interest together in an environment where they can share ideas, express concerns, ask questions. Uh, it is a really dynamic process to interact with people. And, I, and I've missed it personally, but I think we've also missed it as an industry. So there's been a lot of progress on technology uh, and a lot of the innovation has occurred on technology uh, and we we really are endeavoring to make sure that we are abreast of that and we share it with our agents uh, the sales has changed a little bit the ability to uh, how you sell and what your value proposition has become more sophisticated and I think also just that just getting that interaction with people like we talked about earlier and finding what, uh, what's on their mind, what they're worried about, what they think is happening, how their market's going. Uh, I always learn something when I talk to people, so I'm really looking forward to it. Well, Pat, we appreciate you uh, taking time out to join us and hope you have a great event. Well, I think it's going to be wonderful, Brian. Thank you. Thanks to WFG founder and executive chairman Patrick Stone for joining us. And thank you for partnering with WFG.